Well, good morning. Well, welcome, and uh, if you're online, thank you for joining us as well. Uh, whether you're in the room or you're in your room, uh, I know there's other things you could be doing, but you have made it a priority to know God and to worship God, and I really uh, respect that as we gather around His Word again this morning. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20 as we continue our study of last things or prophetic things. What does the Bible tell us about the future? Since God is eternal, he doesn't just know the past or what's going on now. He knows everything, including all of the future, because it is his world. The two prophetic truths that we look at this morning could not be more radically opposite. The first truth we look at is extremely sobering and sad. The second truth we look at is wonderfully thrilling and should fill us with joy. Because what we are looking at today in the Word of God is the reality of heaven and hell. Mankind has always either assumed or supposed that um, there is something after life. And so there is this innate concept, uh, no matter how much some of the modern world scoffs at the ideas of heaven and hell, there's this idea somehow that after life, some people go to the good place and some people go to the bad place. And out of that has arisen many ideas, but there's one general idea, and that is good people go to the good place, and we assume we're good, right? And bad people go to the bad place. We want to see what God's Word says about that today. In the opening words of Revelation 20, where we start at verse 11, there is reference to a great white throne and him who sat on it. So there's a throne, means there's a judgment. It's called the great white throne. Where does the great white throne judgment fit with how we've been studying these past several months? What we've seen is a biblical timeline of the future. So let's take a look once again at the timeline. Um, we don't know what time. We, we only know basic sequence. But we are living in what's called the church age. Of course, we're after Jesus, we're after Christ, and we're living at that X somewhere, anticipating the next event that we've studied in 1 Thessalonians 4 and elsewhere, the rapture. That's when Jesus Christ comes back for all believers and catches us up in the air and takes us to heaven and raises those who have died before that but their faith was in Christ. That is followed by this very unique period of time, a seven-year period of time called the tribulation, in which God is wrapping things up with his people, the Jews in particular, and Christ Jesus again returns, but it's different than the rapture where he comes for believers. He comes to uh, judge, and he comes to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, and he destroys unbelievers while saving many, especially Jews, who turn to him and finally recognize him as their Messiah. Last week, then, we looked at the uh, first part of the book of uh, Revelation 20, and we discovered there is a literal thousand-year period of time. We call it the millennium, meaning it's a thousand. A thousand-year period of time on this earth 
which is a unique time of blessing. It's the final dispensation. If you were, uh, were following us last week, we, used, we kind of traced through the Bible with seven dispensations. Things were different in each one. But, uh, and by the way, if you missed that or want the chart, feel free to pick up a copy of that handout. It's at the back. But the millennium is the final dispensation on earth. And how does that conclude? That's where we're at today. It concludes with this great white throne judgment where Christ judges unbelievers. And that enters or ushers into the eternal state where everyone will be forever in eternal punishment or eternal life with Jesus Christ. So it's a very sobering, vital issue we look at today. Let's read the verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Books, plural. Another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life either has your name written in it or not. If, um, if you are not absolutely sure where you would be one moment after you die, then what we are talking about, what the Bible is talking about here today, is the most important thing you could ever understand in the Scripture as it pertains to you and your relationship to God. Um, everything else going on in the world, and it, there's a lot that we're focused on, right? Everything else becomes petty compared to where you will be forever. I'm convinced that God has established us as a church family, Open Door Bible Church, first of all, to communicate this message. It's the most important thing that anyone could understand about themselves and about God is to know where they would be forever, one moment after they die. The great white throne judgment. Him who was seated on this throne. Who, who is that seated on the throne? It is Jesus Christ. Uh, John chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus said that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. So Jesus Christ, who came to earth, who loved the children, who healed the sick, is also the judge of all the earth. In our study of the uh, prophecy, we've seen him at the rapture come and rescue and save and take believers to heaven to be with him and to be with one another. We've seen him in his grace, right? Here we see him in his justice. There is no contrast, no, no, or contradiction that is, there's no contradiction between the justice of Christ and the grace of Christ. He is perfect justice, that's a good thing. 
and he has perfect grace, that's a good thing. As he is seated on this throne, it says, earth and sky fled from his presence. Where did the earth and sky go? Second Peter chapter 3 in the Bible records this same prophecy, a little more descriptively, of the destruction of the heavens and the earth. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare, just eradicated. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. Earth as we know it, and who knows how much more of the universe, is going to be destroyed to be recreated. Uh, Revelation 21, if you look at the next, ver- next chapter, first verse, speaks of a new heaven and a new earth, right? This we know, God has all power because the same God who created the universe and called it into being by his spoken word in seven days, the same God who called this amazing universe into being by his beautiful design has the right and the power to destroy it and start over. Earth fled. Uh, There is one special planet in the universe the universe, as you know, as you've studied science at all, it's, it's vast. And we're tiny, but it's on this one universe that God placed mankind. One planet in one solar system, in one galaxy of this vast universe, is where he placed Adam and Eve, who were uniquely made in his image. This is the only place where people exist. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, but they sinned. And God, in his love and his desire to have an eternal relationship with the people he created to be like him, people who were created in his image so much that they could understand who God is, your plants and your animals don't understand God. You do. You're you're different. We are made to understand God. And this God then had a plan of salvation to redeem, to fix the problem that man's sin caused, just as God knew it would. And so onto this one planet, he sent his eternal son, God the Son, Jesus, who existed forever, who was created, who created with God. Father, Son, and Spirit are all equally God and all created together. And this one son would do the one thing that would fix the problem of man on earth. But this earth will be destroyed We have to grasp the immensity of God and his universe and his plan to be able to digest the hard truth that we find in the scripture and particularly right here. This judgment. I saw the dead, great and small, verse 12, standing before the throne and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Before we go any further, we have to ask this question. If you are a believer in Christ, will you be at this judgment? No. No, you will not. Why? Because your name is in the book of life. And this is what we find in Scripture describes our status before God that is unique among the rest of the world. If we have placed our faith in Christ, Romans 8 says, therefore, There is now no condemnation. How much? 
None, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free from the law of sin and death. So the requirements of the law that we have broken, we're exempt. We have been forgiven. And so there is no condemnation. So take a deep breath as we study this. If you have placed your faith in Christ and Jesus, your status before God is secure and and settled because you have put your faith in his solution to your sin. And so this is not about you. Where are we? Go back to verse 6 in this chapter 20. It says, Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection, The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So we will have been resurrected a thousand years before this, because this is after the millennium. We will have been resurrected. We are reigning with Christ because our names were in the book of life. Meanwhile, who are these that are standing before the throne? In the same passage, look at verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until after the thousand years were ended. That's what's happening here. The rest of the dead are those who have not put their faith in Christ, God's solution to sin. They came to life. Back now to verse 11 or 12. Who does this include? Great and small. Every kind of person. Kings and commoners. Owners of corporations and janitors, and clerks. Powerful, evil men like Hitler, and neighbors who live down the street sending their kids to the same schools we do. If they have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the one solution to sin, they will appear at this judgment. And will be judged according to what? The book of deeds. According to what they had done as recorded in the books. You see, God is not unjust. God is totally just, totally fair. And he knows everything that everyone has ever done. So this is the ultimate fact check. And there will be no dispute because what we have done, our motives for what we've done, what we've said, what we've intended to do, everything will be laid bare. And how does mankind fare when God sees and judges us based on what we have done? Romans, Paul wrote, as it is written, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Now, this is everybody. This includes us, by the way. There is no one righteous, no, not one. That every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's everyone. If we were judged by, if we are judged by our actions, we do not measure up to the standard God requires for heaven. We all fall short. Paul was writing this to Jewish people in Rome, nice people who had the Old Testament and were trying, like so many even do today, to keep the rules of the Old Testament. You know, the Ten Commandments and keep the rules. Do all those efforts qualify one 
for eternity in heaven? No. What did it say? It said, by the works of the law, no one is made righteous in the sight. You can't, you can't achieve it that way. It's kind of like if I had a cup of water here, half full of water, I put a drop of poison, strychnine, in it. It's going to kill you if you drink it, no matter how much water there is. In fact, you could keep adding water, and it'll still kill you. Because the issue is not how much water there is. The issue is that there is poison in the water. And you see, the issue, unlike what the world has always assumed, what the religious world has assumed, is not whether your good outweighs your bad. It's what are the consequences of sin? And all have sinned, as we just read, all have sinned and fall short of God's standard, his glory. So if, if we are judged by what we have done, what is recorded in the books, we all fall short. Therefore, verse 13, the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. When it says the sea gave up its dead, it seems to be a note saying regardless of the condition or the location of the body that has died, whether it was cast into the sea and disintegrated, whether it was cremated, whether it was buried, makes no difference because we are going to be, unbelievers I should say, are going to be resurrected to face this judgment. Hades is a term used in the Bible, and this should be translated Hades, not hell, depending on how you have it there. Hell is more a description of the final destination after this judgment, also called the lake of fire. Hades is like an intermediate place of suffering where unbelievers are in anticipation of their resurrection to be uh, finally sentenced, if you will. Hades gives up its dead. There is this judgment according to what they had done and then they are cast in the lake of fire the second final death this is the hardest truth in the bible this is the hardest one to swallow and if this was just a bible college course you could just ask a series of questions and there we got it write it down this is tragically sober reality. It's in the Bible. If the, if the Bible is true, this is true. And if this isn't true, then what can you trust? Then the Bible has no use and nothing is true. Everyone lives somewhere forever. Everyone. Sometimes I drive through town. It just kind of hits me as I see all these houses. My eyes get cloudy because everyone living there is going to live somewhere forever. Did you know that Jesus talked more about hell when he was on earth than about heaven? If you just go through the words of Jesus that we have, some examples. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Matthew 25, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Mark 9, cast into hell where their worm, referring to their life, does not die, doesn't end. We're not annihilated uh, like the animal kingdom or plants or whatever. We live forever. We are made in the image of God. He made us into a living soul. We exist forever. And the fire is not quenched. Or Paul wrote to the Thessalonians that God is just. He will punish those, here's the issue, who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. It raises the serious question, why is there hell? Why is it necessary? It's necessary because we do not have a clue to really fully comprehend the holiness of God. The justice of God. Just as we'd say that a a judge is not a good judge if he does not punish an offender, God is not good if he is not just. And so the bad news is that he must punish all sin. And why would Jesus talk about hell? Very simply, because he wants nobody to go there. God's heart for the world is not that we would perish. This is not his desire. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. That's why he gave us his word. That's why we're studying it. That's why you need to hear, you need to know, you need to respond to what he has done for you. The good news is that Jesus came to solve the sin problem. And that is the heart, that is the desire of God. So the final statement of chapter 20 describes the sobering determination of who goes where forever. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is the issue Do you know if your name is written in the book of life? All this information has been written down for us before it happens. Because God loves you and wants you to know. So will you be judged based on the deeds written in the books? Or will you be saved from eternal judgment because your name is in the book of life? and you are exempt. We've already heard the bad news. All have sinned and come short of God's standard. All. Everyone in this room, in your room, in this world. All have sinned and come short, and the penalty of that would be an eternal judgment, eternal death. If we got what we deserved, the fact that there is poison in our cup means that we must be judged. But see, God, in his vast wisdom and love, did not create us to judge us. He created us to have a relationship with us. That was his whole plan of why on this earth 
He put people who would be made in his image so brilliant, so aware, so abil- the ability to reason, to feel, and to think, and to plan. You, you, are, you bear the image of God. And so you have the ability to want that relationship with God. And he wanted a relationship with you, but God was in a dilemma that he anticipated by giving you free will. Because you see, he had to give us free will as a good God because only in a free will relationship, only with free will do we have a relationship. Forced love is not love. You can't force a relationship. And so he gave us choice. He gave us free will. But in that free will, he knew that we would sin. And so he anticipated that dilemma that he, he loved us so much, he wanted a relationship with us, but in our free will, we would choose to sin. And Adam and Eve and everyone since has sinned and fallen short. And so that eternal dilemma, he said, I'll solve it myself. And he brought together love and justice in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. Because on the cross, justice was meted out upon all sin of all time. And God poured his wrath upon his own son who had become man so he could die, but he was in his perfect nature God, and so he would be the solution. He would be the payment for your sin. And so love and justice came together. The cross solved the problem. The issue is that how you personally respond to what he did determines where you'll be forever. John chapter 3 describes God's loving plan of salvation. For God so loved the world, you could fill in your name there, that he gave his one and only son, that's the cross that we've just described, him paying for our sin, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, that's hell, but have eternal life, that's heaven. That's why that's such a, a powerful verse. It pulls it all together. If you believe in him, you go to heaven If you don't believe in him, what happens? Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus didn't come here to judge us. He came to save us. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they, why? Because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. They don't stand condemned because their sin is worse than somebody else's. They stand condemned because they did not put their faith in God's one and only solution to sin. So do you see the, do you see the cross in verse 16? He gave his son the solution. That's where the justice of God was satisfied. He punished Jesus instead of punishing us. Does that mean that all are saved? Do all go to heaven because Jesus paid for the sin of the whole world? No, remember, he wanted a relationship. A relationship requires a free will. He has not forced anyone to believe in him. And so either in humility we will put our faith in him, or in pride we will reject and say, no, I'll do it myself. So here is our choice. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, And we're only condemned if we do not believe in him. It becomes absolutely vital to know what it means to believe in Christ. These are are three places in the New Testament. There are about a hundred places in the New Testament that say the only condition that determines where you will be forever is to have your faith, the word faith or believe, one's a noun, one's a verb, faith or believe in Christ. 
It's mind-boggling that there's a whole religious world that believes you get to heaven based on how good you are when the Bible never says that. It says the opposite. It says whoever believes in Christ got solution. And that is our one choice. Your name is written in the book of life. If you have put your faith in him. So let's think about this word believe. The word believe does not simply mean to believe that there was a Jesus or even believe that our sins were paid for on the cross. Follow me carefully. It's not just believing that Jesus died for our sins. It's believing in. And so the question is not do you believe a fact. The question is what are you putting your faith in? What are you relying on? What are you depending on? What are you trusting in? For eternal life. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 makes it clear. It is by grace. Grace means no merit of our own. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is one of those uh, noun forms. Through believing, you could say. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. No bragging in heaven I got here because I deserve to be here. And so the question is, what are you trusting in for eternal life? I shared this quite a few times, I know, but it could be that for some of you, this is the first time you've ever thought through this issue clearly. Three circles. CW and C plus W. The first one, C, stands for Christ. What are you trusting in for eternal life? Are you trusting in Christ that he paid for your sins on the cross? Or are you W, are you trusting in good works? You think you deserve to be in heaven. Or some would say, well, I'll put it all together. I believe in Christ and good works. But do you know what? Those second two, uh, the second and third circle are really the same thing because they both depend upon you and whether you're good enough or not. Because the only solution to sin is is Jesus Christ, and we come to the foot of the cross. We must come to the foot of the cross in complete humility and say, I could never deserve it because no one is going to boast about deserving heaven. To put your faith in Christ means to rely on him. If you, if you were to want to cross Lake Michigan, we could all try to swim, and some of us would swim farther than others, but no one here, looking around, no one here can swim across Lake Michigan. But there are boats that could take you across. And when you get on a boat, you rely entirely on the boat. You don't need to, you know, paddle, help yourself get across. You must rely on the boat. Jesus Christ alone is your solution to sin. So if you have understood this, maybe for the first time, the question, the choice is yours. Is there anything keeping you from putting your faith in Christ alone right now? And you could just simply in your own heart tell God, I realize I'm a sinner and don't deserve heaven. I realize Jesus paid for my sin. And I'm putting my faith in Jesus Christ alone right now. And if you have made that decision, you know what had just happened? Your name was written in the book of life. Forever. 
It's never going to be erased. Because you have put your faith in Christ alone. If you have done that, chapter 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, describe where you will be forever. This is where the news gets incredibly, amazingly good. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first, first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So it's like this pure white. And I saw a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne, remember that's Jesus, said, I am making everything new. Wow. So Jesus recreates a new heaven, a new earth, and and these last two chapters are really describing this holy city, which is the abode, the the place where we will live forever. It's It's a specific term describing what is commonly we know as heaven. So the lake of fire is hell. The new Jerusalem technically would be at least heaven. There's there's more to it than the city. There's a whole universe that God uh, has. But but the new Jerusalem seems to be where we live. Now, it's coming down, it says, verse 2, out of heaven from God. Uh, Bible students and scholars have differed what this might mean. Does it mean that it's been in existence already, like during the millennium? Because we have been resurrected before that thousand-year period of time, and so perhaps we are living in that city, heaven, already. That would make sense. Some have even supposed maybe it's suspended above the earth, uh, midway between heaven and earth somehow, during that exciting time on earth, millennium. Uh, We don't know some of that for for sure. How is it that we are uh, with Christ and reigning with Christ? We We don't have to figure out everything. But the contrast between the last part of 20 and the first part of chapter 21 could not be more extreme because Jesus is, is, is so just and holy that earth flees from his terrifying presence. And now we encounter God with his closeness and his personal love and his care forever. Everything is new because he has recreated, remember, we read that the, in 2 Peter 3.12, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. The very next verse says, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, just as John says here in Revelation, where righteousness dwells. That's why this city descending looks like a bride adorned for her husband. There is this perfectness. The bride here probably does not refer to uh, just the people of this age, the church, though some of you know that in the Bible the, the church is called the bride of Christ, but uh, rather the, the, the bride uh, probably refers to all believers of all time because now we're all together. Time on earth is over and, and, and we're all together forever and we are all holy. 
This is the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Everything that you don't like about life right now is because of sin. Everything. COVID is because of sin. In the Garden of Eden, before Adam and Eve sinned, there was no disease, there was no death. There will be no death. Conflict is because of sin. We have pride, we have all forms of selfishness or greed, whatever it might be, and, and so all conflict is traced back to sin. But in the new heaven and new earth, righteousness dwells. It's a, it's a term that describes is at home, it's, it's, it's permanent. Today, right, true righteousness is rare. True righteousness is that which God enables. So really, true righteousness only can be that which God is doing through his Holy Spirit in us. Now, there's a lot of good because of the image of God around the world, and there's a lot of good things, but true righteousness is a God thing. Why will it be good? Verse 3, because the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's going to be because God is now present, and only righteousness can be in his presence. But with this righteousness comes this closeness of our relationship with God. We all long for relationship. We all long for community. We all long to belong in a family. But every relationship in every family is faulty in some way. It really is. We all struggle with the dysfunction of sin, if we could call it that. And if you think you have a perfect family, you are struggling with the dysfunction of denial. Perfect relationships do not exist until heaven. And we will have those perfect relationships because of a perfect relationship with God. But here's the exciting thing. You can start on that relationship right now. If you put your faith in Christ, maybe today, you just started a relationship with God forever. And you grow in that relationship by communicating with God. And you can do that today. That's why we have the Bible. This is how God talks to us. And that's why we pray, is because we're talking to God. It's that simple. And so we have a, a glimpse of a perfect relationship, but we will know him perfectly in heaven. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So if, if you struggle with your relationship with God, and we all said we do. <laughs> if you struggle in your relationship with God, you're going to have a perfect relationship with God. Everything will be made new. And so that's why your personal experience is completely transformed, verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Wipe away tears means if it's sad, it's over. It's done. The stuff that the world has gone through the last seven months has brought out more fears and more tears. So it's kind of highlighted, but frankly, the last 10, 20, or 
if you've been around a long time, the last 70, 80 years haven't been so great either. Because of death. And we're all a day closer to death every day. COVID is the fear of death. Cancer is the fear of death. When your teenager doesn't arrive home as soon as you expected him or her, it's the fear of death. When your husband or wife doesn't respond to texts for a long time, it's the fear of death. There will be no more death. Probably everyone here has lost someone close. Are you ready to be done with death? Tears, mourning, crying. Tears are visual sorrow. You can tell if someone's crying. Mourning is the emotion of sorrow, which is unseen. Crying is the sound of sorrow. Done. Anyone ready to be done with sorrow? No more pain. When you're injured, recovering from surgery, at some point every year you get older, (laughs) discover more pain. Some of you know chronic pain that only very few experience. No more pain. Ready to be done with pain? Ready to be done with pain? Because he says, behold, I'm making everything new. Picking it up in the middle of verse 5, we see Jesus revealing to John in this book of Revelation, reviewing how you can have this. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, that Jesus said to John, the one writing Revelation, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet indicating time is done. John, I want you to write this down. I smile almost reading that because... That's what the whole book of Revelation has been John writing down the revelation of Jesus Christ. Go back to Revelation 1, verse 1. But it's like, this is, this is so important, Jesus says, make special note. This is trustworthy. This is certain. You can take this to the bank. This is true. Make sure that everybody knows this. There'll be a time when life is done on earth. The dispensations that we looked at last week, All these different tests in which every case man has shown himself under every condition on earth to be sinful. And in every situation on earth, God showed himself to be gracious and provide a way of salvation. But he says, you've come through all this. I'm the Alpha. Now we're at the Omega. And life on earth, the dispensations on earth are done, over. Let the eternal celebration, the party, begin. I love, love, love the next lines. Middle of verse 6. To him who is thirsty, I will, give the, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. To him who is thirsty, to him who wants this, I will give this water of life without cost. The water of life may well be literal in heaven because we live very literal 
physical lives in heaven. We are in new, glorified, immortal bodies that can't die. It's a body like Christ had after his resurrection. He's the first fruits of resurrection, and we are resurrected, so we assume, just as Jesus ate and drank on earth before he ascended to heaven, we will have physical bodies, and we will enjoy drinking water from this spring. Maybe the spring is in somehow the source of our eternal existence. Jesus seemed to allude to this when he was talking to the woman of Samaria, John chapter 4, and he says, you know, she was getting water for him. She says, you know, if you'd asked me for the gift, then I'd have given you living water. So how is this water of life available? What's it cost us? Nothing. Like everything else in heaven, it is absolutely free. Heaven itself, everything in heaven, is available only as a gift. Don't try to earn what you could never afford. It's only available for free. And don't be arrogant, which is essentially what most of the religious world is struggling with, Arrogant thinking, if I just got to be this good, I would deserve to be in heaven. No, no, it's free. Another quote from Larry Moyer, our our friend and the evangelist. I saw him post recently. He said, when we think that any amount of good living can earn heaven, we do not understand the grandeur of heaven or the gravity of sin. Heaven is of such grandeur that a zillion years of good living would not make us worthy to receive it. And the slightest sin has to be punished. If someone will not receive it as a completely free gift because of or based on Christ's substitutionary death and resurrection, God will not give it to him. The passage we looked at earlier, Ephesians. All praise has to go to him. Something this wonderful. It's only available for free. And that's exactly what he's offered you. The passage ends with kind of a jolting reality. But the cowardly, verse 8, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars their place will be in the fiery lake of fire, burning sulfur, mine says. This is the second death or the final death or judgment. Some have wondered if this means that anyone who has done these things will not go to heaven, uh, which doesn't say that at all. Doesn't like suddenly like everything has changed, what the Bible said, and now there's, the rules are different, and you have to earn heaven. Clearly, he's not saying that. Some have wondered, does this mean that no true believer would ever have done these things or do these things? And that wouldn't be the point at all. Uh, anybody here ever lied? You no, know, anybody here has not lied, because if you raise your hand, you're lying. <laughs> no, those are the sins out of which God has redeemed us. But these words seem to list the kind of sins that typify those who will be judged because they are not turning in faith in Christ for sins. Is your name in the book of life? That's it. 
If you have placed your faith in Christ alone, your name is in the book of life, and you will live forever with him. You need to make that decision. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are uh, sobered by the realities of hell and heaven. We trust your word. It has guided and described life for us. It tells us who you are and what you've done in every good way. And now we face the sobering truth of your holiness, which only shows your goodness is greater than we ever imagined, but we see ourselves and our sin is more serious than we ever thought. I pray for anyone hearing these words who has not placed their faith in you alone, not not in Christ and themselves, but Christ alone, that they would simply but humbly put their faith in Christ alone. And then you say that you will give them the water of eternal life freely without cost. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.